one of the writers who sort of traveled in the same circles as C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. And in a lecture she gave entitled, The Other Six Deadly Sins, Sayers expressed her frustration that we had reduced immorality to sexual deviancy of some type. She wrote, A man might be greedy and selfish, spiteful, cruel, jealous and unjust, violent and brutal, grasping, unscrupulous and a liar, stubborn and arrogant, stupid, morose and dead to every noble instinct. But we will not deem him immoral, for lo, he has kept his zipper zipped. She went on to say, I am reminded of a young man who once asked me with perfect simplicity, I didn't know there were seven deadly sins. Please tell me the name of the other six. Uh, In many people's eyes, sexual sin in general is the deadly sin. This is a little odd, given that Jesus said less about sexual sin than he said about any of the others. But it is, on the one hand, understandable because, first of all, we live in a hyper-sexualized culture. And secondly, the things that Jesus said about sexual sin don't leave a whole lot of wiggle room. Now, I'm not sure where you're at in your understanding of a biblical sexual ethic, But given that the the ground is moving under our feet with um, with some significance of late, and given that uh, when it comes to sex, this seems to be one area where common sense is not very common, uh, I want to back up and, and lay out sort of a comprehensive understanding of how we should think about all these things. To that end, I have seven points today. Number one is... God is pro-sex. God is pro-sex. He is the one who created us as sexual beings. It was all his idea. He wired us for pleasure. He he figured out how the, the parts would fit together. This is all according to his design. He created us as sexual beings in order and created the, the sex event in order to consummate marriage, express love, make babies, and have fun. He is not surprised by our sexual desires. He is not approved in any way, shape, or form. And lest you think otherwise, simply read the book. We find in here, such as Deuteronomy 24, where Moses gives example to the young soldiers who are recently married not to go on the military campaign, but to stay home and, quote, enjoy your wife. We have statements such as the Apostle Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 7, where he writes, The wife's body, the wife does not have authority over her body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other. In other words, make love, have sex. This is God's counsel. The Song of Solomon is filled with such unabashed uh, reveling in sexual passion that many people blush in reading it. And the Hebrew is more graphic or is at least prone to sort of the double entendres that don't make it into the translation to such an extent that, that in early times the Jews did not want single males ever to read the book. 
And then we have passages such as Proverbs 5.18. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving, do- a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. The church has not always got this message out, but this has always been the message. God is pro-sex. Point number two. Our sexuality has been affected by sin. Like everything else that God created to be good and wonderful and innocent and pure, our sex drive has been corrupted. Our sexual desires are skewed and disordered. What God designed to be a gift shared between one man and one woman joined together in a mutually honoring lifetime commitment has been corrupted by selfishness, by power, and by lust. And as I mentioned last week in the discussion on gluttony, those things that have the potential for great good, food, fire, fusion, sex, carry with them an equal power to destroy. The power for blessing brings with it a power for devastation. And we certainly see that devastation. Point number three. uh, Because our sexual desires are disordered, God has given us rules. Because sex is dangerous, and because we cannot default to our desires to be an appropriate guide, God has spelled out rules to govern our sexual expression. We have Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, do not commit adultery. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, do not covet your neighbor's wife. Hebrews 13, keep the marriage bed pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. The laws that God gives, of which there are many, are not there because he is trying to throw some cosmic cold shower on us. They are there for our own protection. Because sex is a very powerful drive. And in case you haven't noticed, sex causes people generally, men in particular, to do rather stupid things. So otherwise well-intentioned, well-mannered men... We'll throw discretion to the wind, we'll lie and cheat, we'll do all kinds of things in the pursuit of sex. And so God has given us very specific guidelines to keep sex from jumping the tracks to protect us from ourselves. And additionally, to protect sex. Because as it turns out, Sex is not just sacred, it's also fragile. Sex can be broken. Sex can be used in ways that don't bring a husband and a wife together, but actually drive them apart. I have uh, shared in the past my scotch tape theory of sexuality. A piece of scotch tape is, at its best, when it's put down the first time. If you peel that piece of scotch tape up in order to use it again, 
it doesn't have nearly the kind of adhesion that it had the first time. If you peel it up again and use it a third time and a fourth time and a fifth time, it gradually loses its ability to provide any kind of adhesion. The same, in one sense, is true for sex. God's laws are designed to lead to the greatest joy possible, but that means that sex is at its best. It works to bind us together best when it binds together once. One man and one woman. We have lots of examples of this. Study after study has made it clear that the women who enjoy the best sex, the most frequent, the most enjoyable, those who are most happy with their sex life in marriage are religious women who have been sexually monogamous their entire life. One partner, right? Those are the people, those are the women who report the greatest sexual satisfaction because that's the way God designed us. That's the way sex is supposed to work. For a woman, sex is its highest source of joy when it emerges in the context of an all-encompassing total life union with someone whom they can be committed to with reckless abandon, with whom they are safe, loved, and unconditionally accepted. Forget worrying about whether or not the children are going to walk into the room. There's no fear that the husband is ever going to walk out of the marriage. Now, the same thing actually holds true for men, though men and women are different. I suspect you have noticed, and when it comes to sex, men and women are different, and it's not just the physical architecture that makes men and women different. Generally speaking, uh, Women, as compared to men, are more interested in the emotional relationship than in the sexual event. Women will often use sex to get love, where men will leverage love to get sex. Not exclusively true, and men are not simply interested in the sexual event. Study after study shows that men want sex in the context of a loving relationship where they are cared for and known and accepted. But, all things being equal, men tend to be a little bit more interested in the sexual event than women are. So, offer a woman sex or chocolate, and it's anybody's guess. Uh, It's never a guess in terms of what the guy will choose. There are other differences as well. Men tend to be more visually oriented in terms of sex than women are. This is why there are a billion more pictures of naked women out there than there are of naked men. Women tend to lean a little bit more into literature in this arena. Romance novels and erotic literature. Witness the recent Fifty Grades of Shea or 50, gray, 50 Shades of Grey. This would be a dangerous talk to misspeak on, so I, I hope... I'm not sure what I said. Anyway, the 50 Shades of Grey. I have not read 50 Shades of Grey, but I've read enough about 50 Shades of Grey to know that um, it's, while it's not 
porn classically defined, that's sort of what it is. It's designed to elicit uh, sexual arousal. So, uh, men and women are different. When it comes to protecting sex, when it comes to, to the way God has designed us for sex to be at its best, right, we see the same kind of, of connectivity working in a man's life. We have recent uh, research on sort of neurochemistry uh, gives us two graphs. Let me pull these up here. <clears throat> The first, this is, this is significantly simplified, but let me just say that uh, endorphin release in the male brain is at its highest when he is having sex with a new partner or looking at a picture of someone for the first time. It goes down after that. However, there is a second uh, Hormone, second chemical that is released into the male, male brain. It's oxytocin. And oxytocin acts as a glue. And the oxytocin levels will climb over the years, making the best sex between one man and one woman after 20, 30, 40 years, provided that he is sexually faithful. We have a second slide here. When there are multiple partners, the endorphins go high with each new partner, right? And then they begin to trail. But what you notice is that the oxytocin levels begin gradually to go away. The glue that would bind a man to his wife no longer works. Now... There's always healing. There's always hope, right? I, I, I would say about this the same thing I would say to somebody who's smoking. Look, th- as soon as you stop smoking, the effects of the smoking begin to be reversed, right? It's always best to stop. But I'm also here to say sex is fragile. As a pastor, I'm, I'm no longer surprised but deeply saddened when a couple comes into my office and is talking about their relationship and I learn that they have stopped sleeping together. Young couples in their, in their 30s or 40s. And they go, no, 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 we're not, even, we're not here to talk about that. That's, that's too complicated, right? We're not interested in that anymore. We simply want to figure out how we can make this marriage work for the sake of the kids, well, um, it's not too complicated, right? I mean, sex isn't that complicated, but it is fragile, and it can be broken. And, and there's all this sexual history, and there's all these problems that come out of, out of deviating from God's design. God's design, every thou shalt not has a loving principle behind it. There is a grand positive behind every negative that we find in Scripture. God is not being a scold. God is not just trying to be a killjoy. He is protecting us. The best relationships, the strongest relationships come in the context of one man and one woman who are going to be faithful to each other. Point number four. Lust is a sin. 
God is pro-sex, but our sexuality is disordered. Consequently, there are rules. Number four, lust is a sin. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Lust is sin. It is. It hinders our relationship with God. Lust, that is obsessive, excessive uh, thoughts or desires of a sexual nature, is a sin. Now, I am not talking about desire in the context of marriage. That's actually the plan. In Genesis, we're told, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. That word in the Hebrew, cleave or cling, uh, that word actually expresses a desire to the point of irresistibility, right? Irresistibility in the context of marriage is not lust. It's the plan, okay? So we're not talking about that. We're not talking about temptation. Lust is different than temptation. Temptation is inevitable. Jesus was tempted in every way that we are and yet remained without sin. Temptation is not sin. In some settings, it's impossible not to be tempted. But temptation, noticing, can lead to lust. And lust is is when we do not uh, hold our thoughts captive. Lust is when we have an undisciplined mind. I I don't know whether or not David was uh, on the balcony when he saw Bathsheba innocently or not. I actually think not. I think he knew what he would see if he went out there that time of night. But let's give him the benefit of the doubt. He didn't know. At some point, he sees a woman who is not his wife, who is naked, bathing in a, in a, on a balcony below him. Okay? So if he's out there unsuspecting, that's not sin. But he doesn't have a whole lot of time to get off that balcony before noticing is going to become lust. And he doesn't do that. And so lust gives birth to adultery, and adultery will ruin the man's life, right? He's never the same. Now, we can be forgiven. I would not be talking about this if I could not promise you forgiveness by God, complete forgiveness. But please understand, sin also has consequences, We're not forgiven the consequences, right? David sleeps with Bathsheba, and she conceives and has has a child. There are consequences to the sin, and he is saddled with those consequences. Lust gives birth to sin. We are casual with lust. Today it's considered normal, uh, expected. At worst, it's the victimless crime. Jesus had a very different view. In the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he is on record as comparing lust to adultery. Let me read it for you um, in the paraphrase from Eugene Peterson. This is Christ speaking. He says, you know the next commandment pretty well. Do not go uh, to bed with another's spouse. But don't think you've persevered Don't think you preserved your virtue simply by staying out of bed. Your heart can be corrupted by leaven quicker than your body. Those leering looks you think nobody notices, they also corrupt. 
Let's not pretend this is easier than it really is. If you want to live a morally pure life, here's what you have to do. You have to blind your right eye the moment you catch it in a lustful leer. You have to choose to live one-eyed or else be dumped on a moral trash pile. There is no allowance per Christ's directions for window shopping and innocent flirtation. He employs hyperbole in order to tell us to take extreme measures, and by not doing it, he doesn't simply mean adultery, he means the, the fantasy that could precede adultery. Jesus changes the ban from adultery to lust. Martin Luther said famously, um, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from making a nest in your hair. We are responsible to control our thoughts, to hold every thought captive to Christ. Point number five. Pornography is a sin. The whole point of pornography is lust. Now, the issue of lust, uh, you could lust without ever seeing pornography, but To give a talk on lust without talking about pornography doesn't make sense today, in part because pornography is everywhere. It used to be not that long ago that you had to go looking for it. You now have to actively try to avoid it. And secondly, uh, the, the fallout of pornography is becoming so devastating. I talk with men. Who, who report pornography addictions. I talk with women who are in to, to express how devastated they are that their husbands or their boyfriends or their sons have a pornography addiction or, more recently, to, to confess that they have pornography addictions. There's a sense in which pornography has been mainstreamed. There's a sense in which the stigma has gone away. Um, not, I don't think completely for anybody. There's always an ongoing sense of shame, but I just want to be really clear. Pornography is a sin. It's a bad idea. It, uh, it ruins us. Now, I'm not suggesting that there's anything shameful with the human body. Not at all. And I'm not suggesting that there's anything surprising about being drawn to provocative pictures. Uh, that's really the way, especially men, are wired. I can tell you, because these images are so powerful, I can tell you exactly where I was as a third grader walking home from school with an older boy when he pulls out a Playboy centerfold and for the first time I see a picture of a naked woman. I I remember being absolutely mesmerized. I did not have to be told that this was an an all-consuming moment, right? That's the effect that it has. Uh, So it's, it's the human body is not shameful, and we shouldn't be surprised that it works. But um, pornography is wrong at just a whole bunch of levels. It objectifies mostly women. It cheapens marriage. It treats something that is that is sacred, as if it's very casual. It fuels a sexual underground that perpetuates rape and sexual trafficking. It, it is, it, it's wrong at one level because it's so deceptively thin and shallow. I mean, there, there's a sense in which the irony here is that pornography doesn't 
show enough of a person. Right? It's not that it shows too much. It's that it doesn't show enough. It's reduced someone to an image. Right? I mean, forget that it's deceptive because there's, it's airbrushed and forget, that it's, forget all of that deception. It's deceptive in that it is, is reducing a person made in the image of God down to just a picture. And, and that's when, when God first describes the union of Adam and Eve, he says, Adam knew Eve. And the word that's used there, yada in Hebrew, is an all-encompassing, holistic union of two lives. It's a big word, right? And pornography is a thin medium. And, of course, the other challenge with pornography is that it is, uh, it is especially Internet pornography, it's addictive. So it's the new, uh, internet pornography is the new crack cocaine. I, I read an article a couple of years ago in which a neurosurgeon said that he could tell by looking at someone's brain whether or not they were addicted to internet porn. And he said the only time he'd been wrong is when someone was actually addicted to crack cocaine. Now, I, I didn't believe that. It sounded, sounded like something not to believe. So... I, I sent the article to Michael Walsh. Michael and his wife, uh, Lisa, were here at Christ Church for a few years. They've moved to the southeast. He's a neurosurgeon. And I sent him the article, and I said, Michael, can you look at someone's brain and tell if they're addicted to pornography? And he said, yes, you can. Right? It, it, internet pornography especially changes the physiology of the brain. Um, so, again... Remember, sin is ultimately defective good, right? It can never truly satisfy because it's broken by its very essence. So the nature of sin is to demand more and more while giving less and less. And the nature of, of, of pornography is to demand more and more hours of viewing and more and more shocking pictures, and it pulls people into the abyss, it leads to despair. I could go on on this. I don't think I have to. Um, God really does know best. Point number six. Our culture makes sexual purity difficult. God is pro-sex. Our sexuality is disordered. There are rules. Lust is a sin. Porn is a sin. Number six. Our culture is making it harder and harder to maintain something approximating sexual purity. Cultures are not neutral. Some cultures are better than others. At least some cultures are better in some things than other cultures are. Our culture has much going for it, but it is in serious and rapid decay as it relates to sexuality. Fifteen years ago, we fought to keep adult bookstores away from kids relegated to the bad parts of town. Now, everything there and worse is, of course, uh, delivered by high-speed, high-definition cables into people's homes where, where everyone, including children, have an opportunity to see it. Um, we are living in what one uh, futurologist predicted some time ago would be a pornified world. That, I think, describes our culture. It is pornified. Uh, now, we're not the first culture to head down this path. Cultures fall either from outside forces 
or they fall from within. If they fall from within, it almost always precedes a time of sexual decay where traditional sexual values are jettisoned. And so um, that's the path we're headed down, and in one sense, we're racing down it. I mean, 40 years ago, uh, you know, it was Andy Griffith and Father Knows Best, and today it's 500 channels of Anything Goes. And uh, 40 years ago, it was, it was a, a, a mild Playboy magazine, and now it is a vile, uh, ubiquitous Internet. Um, images previously unthinkable in public life now adorn billboards for all to see. You really have to get out of the country. You have to get out of the West for a while to appreciate the decay that has gone on. You have to get into Africa. You have to get into India. You have to be someplace for a couple weeks and let your gauges reset in order to, to appreciate how shocking our culture has become on this front. Again, 40 years ago, Elvis scandalized the country with a few hip gyrations, and Marilyn Monroe scandalized the country with some really quite modest pictures in a bathing suit. Hugh Hefner went to jail for publishing pictures of topless women. That was 40 years ago. Uh, We live in a very different day right now, and I think there are reasons to think we will not survive this. I could go on. Uh, Our culture is in trouble. I think we all have some appreciation for this. What we may not appreciate is the number of small concessions we make uh, living in a culture that is as base as ours is and what that does to us over time. The situation is bleak, which leads us to number seven. There is hope. There is always hope. There is always hope hope for those who put their trust and faith in God. And there's a way forward. And I want to close briefly by giving you five sort of steps towards sexual sanity. Number one, uh, realize that it's fire that we're playing with, right? And you you don't play with it without getting burned. Uh, Better men than me. Better men and women than you have gone down when they have underestimated the undertow of sexual desire, right? And when they go down, one of the things you often hear is, I I really didn't think it could happen to me. So, it can happen to you. It can happen to me. Don't think that it can't because I promise you, it can And every concession we make is not just a concession. It's not just sin that brings its own consequences. It makes going to that line easier the next time. That's the nature of sex. It's very hard to go back. It's very hard to go backwards. Number two, flee sexual temptation. Run, don't walk to get away. Make no provision for the flesh. We are seldom more faithful than our options. So you have to remove options. Right? You, have, you have to safeguard yourself against temptation. When I'm talking with, with guys, when I'm talking with my own sons, I, I, and I'm recommending certain steps to take, I say, look, it's not, it's not that I don't trust you. I don't. But it's not that I don't trust you. 
I don't trust myself, right? I don't trust anybody, right? It, it, this is trusting that we're going to be strong is the wrong approach. We're not told, right, to stand strong and fight against sexual temptation. We're told to flee. We're told to run. We're told to get away because we don't win these fights. So, uh, you know, I, I got, I got uh, covenant eyes on my laptop, right, that doesn't limit where I can go on searches, but it reports inappropriate searches to two friends. I don't trust myself, right? Flee temptation, make no provision for this. Number three, play offense. Seek God. G.K. Chesterton said that the man who knocks on the door of a brothel is there looking for God. We have a glory vacuum in our life. And if we don't fill that glory vacuum with glory, with God, then we will fill it with something else, and sex is high on that list. So this is about seeking God zealously. Number four, memorize scripture. It's impossible to not think about something. You have to think about something else. Right? You have to replace what you don't want to think about with something else. And I have found the best thing to replace what you're trying not to think about with is Scripture. God's Word is living and active. It's powerful. It, it helps redirect our thoughts in ways I've not found other things to do. And then finally, destroy the power of secret shame by confessing your own sins to others. And this is where I think when men's fraternity works, it works because of this. Right? Because we have tried to create a space where we say, this is safe. You can't get, we have people stand up at men's fraternity with some frequency to say, I got a, I got a drug problem, I got an alcohol problem, I'm, I'm going bankrupt, my marriage is on vapors, I got a porn addiction, I got whatever. We, we don't ask men who are coming to stand in front of the group and do that. We just have some leaders who stand up and do that to sort of say, we're going to be honest here. And and none of those things will get you kicked out of men's fraternity. What will get you kicked out of men's fraternity is breaking the code of silence for somebody else. You cannot talk about what happens and what people share in your small group. We're trying to create a space where when you go, this is my struggle, the response is, okay, well, now I'll pray for you. Your struggle may or may not be my struggle, but we all got struggles, right? And, And... we encourage one another, we love one another, we pray for one another, we, we hold each other accountable, we, we, we confess our sins to one another. We take away the power of secret shame. Because once you confess your sin to somebody, then it loses its grip. And, and when you realize, they know the worst about me. And they're still there for me. Right? There's freedom there. There's, that, that's, that's what grace is, right? I'm not accepted because, I, because I'm good. If they knew the truth about me, they wouldn't like me. No, they know the worst about me. We, we, we confess our sins to one another to take away the power of shame, of secret shame. So those are some steps that we can take forward. I actually want to lead us all in a time of confession because none of us are unscathed in this arena and because God is for you here, right? 
I don't know what you've done, not interested in knowing what you've done, but God is not a skull. These are not, he, he is not, in, in the worst sense, the puritanical tyrant here looking for people to trip up. He is a loving, gracious father who is laying out a pathway that works. And he is quick to forgive whenever we turn to him. And so I want to lead us in a time of corporate confession. I am going to give you some things to think about and uh, silently give you a couple moments to think about them. And then I will pray, and coming out of that prayer, I will end uh, each of these four sessions by saying, Lord, have mercy on us. And as you will see on the screen, the response collectively will be, Lord, forgive me for my sin. So let's begin by taking a moment silently to confess that our views about sex are disordered and dishonoring, and that we have... um, and that we have come before him with a lot of sexu- that we come before him with a lot of sexual shame and sin. Lord, we confess that we have failed to be sexually pure. We have misused and misunderstood sex. We've treated what is sacred in casual ways. We've used sex for selfish ends. We've allowed our desires for pleasure, power, acceptance, and fulfillment to disorder our desires. We've dishonored you and hurt others by our actions. Lord, have mercy on us. Lord, forgive me for my sin. Take a moment to confess an undisciplined thought life. The times in which you've let your mind wander in inappropriate ways. Lord, we have not held every thought captive to Christ as we've been instructed. We've been undisciplined in our thinking. We've fueled sin. We've crossed lines. We've allowed our thoughts to dishonor you and others. Lord, have mercy on us. Take a moment to confess a lack of discipline with our eyes. Second glances, inappropriate movies, books, and pornography. Lord, our visual diet has not been honoring to you. We've been poor stewards of our eyes. We have gazed at those other than our spouses. We've objectified them for our own fulfillment. Lord, have mercy on us. Finally, take a moment to confess ways that we've allowed our culture to shape our views of sex. Lord, we've allowed our standards to be eroded by an eroding culture. Rather than follow your path, we have deceived ourselves by a series of small compromises. We've come to accept sex as a vehicle to sell and to excite. We now laugh at things that should break our heart. We've allowed our culture's view of sex to warp our own identity and diminish our own self-worth. Lord, have mercy on us. Create in me a clean heart, O God, 
and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Amen. Early this morning, laying in bed, I was thinking how to transition from the sermon into the song we're going to sing. And uh, this passage of scripture came to mind. I'd like to think the Lord put it on my mind. Uh, but this passage came to me from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I think it's very good news. I have found this to be 